Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Genesis 3:17 through 19. And to the man, God said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, although you, though you eat, will eat of its grain. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. Ecclesiastes 2, 22-25. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. So, I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? This is the word of the Lord. Now, before we even get into this and before I pray, we've got to understand how God and his grace impacts our work. If you live to be the average age of about 80 years old, second only to sleeping, second only to sleeping, working is by far the thing you're going to spend your life doing the most of. If we don't see how God and his grace impact our work, that's not a minor thing. That means we don't see how God and his grace impact the main thing we spend our lifetimes doing. That's a big deal. So, thankfully, God has a lot to say about your work, which for a lot of y'all will be seen through the lens of your studies or maybe the job that you're looking at for next year. But let me pray for us, and we're going to work our way through these passages that Alex heard a moment ago. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that um, because you have made all things and rule over all things, take us on a little journey tonight. And maybe for the first time ever, show us how the, what the gospel has to do with our studying and our internships and our careers and our callings. I remember how this was one of the most exciting things you showed me after you showed me yourself. I'd never thought about this, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would be so kind to open the eyes of any of my friends here tonight who have not seen your beauty in this part of our lives. Pray this in your name. Amen. Already heard a few stories about this. Some of y'all have what you would describe as crazy roommates. Not literally. Haven't heard those stories yet. But just like, I don't know, roommates that might be a little bit hard to live with. Well, I just want to remind you, I have four roommates that are a lot crazier than your roommates. Anna and I live with four little children. The oldest is eight, and the youngest turned four yesterday. That's our life. And uh, so my roommates literally 
still wet the bed. Two nights ago, one fell out of bed onto the floor, screaming after wetting the bed. <laughs> Our roommates are loud and messy. <laughs> My roommates eat the Doritos and put the empty bag back in the pantry every week. And Doritos is my dinner on Wednesday nights when I get home. <laughs> but I love almost every minute of having those little people living in our house. I love it. So I love the summers because we just came out of summer, which was two months when the kids were out of school. And they got up earlier than us most mornings. And so Anna and I would wake up and come out into the living room. And here's what we saw most mornings. Eli, my oldest, had his Legos. He had gone and gotten all of his Legos, and they're just all strewn over the front room floor, and he's building some new civilization every day. Addie's our artist. So out of the art cabinet, before we get up, there's, she's got paintings going on, markers everywhere, like drawings. She's making books. And then our youngest, Noah and Lena, have pulled all the bedding off their beds, the blankets, the sheets, the pillows, and they're the tunnel makers and the fort builders in our living room. And so we wake up and literally all the furniture's been moved and there's blankets draped over everything and they're just giggling underneath the sheets. And it's not just that that's how their day started, that's how the day went. It was just a question of are they gonna be doing that stuff inside the house or out in the yard? It was just bouncing back and forth the whole time. Here's what I love about that. And if you have a really young sibling or a niece or a nephew or you work in a nursery or babysit, you, see, you have seen this too. Little kids are full of these creational clues. In other words, if you spend time with a little child, you will see a lot of little glimpses of what you were made to be of how you were made to live. It's the glory of a child. Something happens when we grow up. We get influenced by whatever influences or we overthink things, but a kid, they haven't even, no one's had even had time to teach them. So if you watch a, a kid, here's what you see. For example, they're perfectly content living a life of total dependence on others. And you were made, you were made for that. They are naturally trusting of people in authority. They're not suspicious. Are they going to use their power to double-cross me? They run to people in authority. You were made for that. That's how you were made. And they're little worker bee, busybodies. They're always creating and building and making, and whether it's forts or art or stories at bedtime, always in creation mode. And you were made that way, too. Now, I get it. You're not doing the same things that little kids are doing at this age, but you have your creative outlets. Your hobbies is where you do that. It's where you scratch that itch. Video games is where you scratch that itch. This virtual world that you're building or you're expanding or you're, you're imagining. Maybe your major, maybe your work. You love it because it's the place where you get to build and create and imagine. When you add all this up, what it really makes obvious is that you were made to work. One of the things you were made to do is to work. But how do we mean that? 
how do we mean that phrase, that God made you to work? Because you could hear it in a positive way, you could hear it in a really negative way. For example, um, we call it mythology, the ancient Greeks didn't call it mythology, they thought it was reality, but the gods of Mount Olympus, literally in their creation myths, made men and women to do their dirty work on earth, to be their little grunts. In essence, they're slaves. Uh, the Egyptians, we've talked a little bit about the original context of these Genesis passages. These were people who first heard this word from God. These were people uh, who Egypt said, yeah, we agree, you, you're a worker. God made you to work for us. In other words, at your essence, you're a producer for a system. Which oddly is the same thing Western or American culture says to us today. Uh, UGA says this today. You exist to produce, 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 create. You exist to work. Okay, this is a hot take. Controversial, I guess. Uh, both parts of this are, because first I've got to tell you how long ago I graduated undergrad, and that alone is not fun for me to talk about. But this December, it's 20 years. I graduated in 2003. Thank you. That just confirms how old you thought I really was. So 20 years ago, but um, I've been around Athens and UGA for a lot of that time, and here's the, one of the biggest changes that I've seen from UGA in 2003 to UGA in 2023. Back in my day, I would say what was obvious uh, was, I'll put it bluntly, the alcoholism. I was a part of that. And I've seen over 20 years an evolution into workaholism. And it's not that nobody back in my day worked hard and you know, was an overachiever or that today downtown's not a problem or a temptation. I'm just saying, if you look at the average person today, where they're pouring their life into to find life. Back in my day, me and my buddies found it downtown. Today, I think the average person finds it in the books in achievement, in the dream job, in getting into the program. That's the shiny object and that's the big change that I've seen. So, what do we mean when I say God made you to work? Do we mean it in that weird way that you're a productivity machine to just produce, 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 to work 60 hour weeks when you graduate and go f you know, pad the pockets of the guy at the top or the woman at the top? Clearly, we don't mean that. God said something in the original ancient day that was countercultural, and it's just as countercultural today. It flipped the tables of the status quo back then, and it flips the tables of the status quo today, too. What he's going to tell you is dignifying of you, it honors you, God respects you. And it's beautiful. If I could put it in my own words, here's what I think he says to you tonight. He says, the little kids, they get it. They get it. Eli and Addie and Noah and Lena, he's saying, learn from them. I did build you to build stuff. 
I made you to make. I created you to create. So in a, in a sense, he's saying, because I made you in my image, and the God who said that to you is a builder, a creator, a developer, a life giver. To be created in his image, part of what that means is you are a developer, a builder, a refiner, a perfecter of creation. So in other words, the chip has, uh, you and I are chips off the old block. The apple has not fallen far from the family tree. You're like the God who made you, and he's a God who works. And so you're a creature who works. Verse 26, this is the first little chunk. We'll work through this little by little briefly. But, but verse 26 says, God said, this is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why there's the plural here. Let us make human beings, or let us make man in our image to be like us. And you say, well, what does it mean to be like God? We're going to talk about a lot of ways of what it means to be like God this fall. But one of the ways the text tonight is accenting to be like God is what he says in the next verse. To be like God is to reign or to rule or govern, to oversee creation. He talks about it in shorthand here. He's just talking about the different realms of creation, the birds, the livestock, the fish, the wild animals on the earth. He's saying all of it. He's put you as a king or a queen over to join him in his work of bringing it into perfection. Uh, this isn't accidental. In chapter two, I didn't put this on there, but then the next chapter after making Adam, God says to him, or, or God says about him, he took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That was the original like, vocation of humanity. It was like a groundskeeper at the botanical gardens. Take, this, take what God has created and perfect it. That forest where the botanical gardens are, if you've ever left the boundaries of the botanical gardens and like, gotten lost on a trail or something, it's just kind of a ratty-looking forest. But a lot of people over a lot of decades do you see that the, the beauty that they have brought out of that? How they've developed it and refined it and unleashed its potential? Human beings did that. That's what God is calling humanity to, calling you to, and inviting us into. So, what's the connection between God's work and your work? This is the connection, to put it really briefly. This is the link. God shares his work with you. In other words, Christian or not, we're talking about all humanity here, all human beings. Um, God has given you a stake in the family business. You weren't just born and then you go figure out on your own what to do with your life. You were born with a calling for what to do with your life, a trajectory for your life. Let's tease this out a little bit more. Some of you are familiar with the Bible and Christianity. Some of you are not. The gist of the first two chapters of the Bible is this. Uh, God shows himself to be a God who, over the course of six days, um, perfects and organizes and optimizes all that he's made. 
to bring out flourishing. And then it says, he says, he rested on the seventh day. Clocked out. He was done. But we can misunderstand what it means that he rested on the seventh day because a lot of times we think he retired on the seventh day. Hit 65, I get my social security now. Man, that was a great career of making things and creating and developing and imagining and bringing life to things. But I'm going to have a retirement party. I'm, I'm all done with that. I'm getting out of the business. When I put it that way, you know he didn't retire on the seventh day. So what does it mean that he rested? Well, more than a retirement, think of it as an intermission. We know, if you were here last week, we know that the work of creation continues. Colossians chapter 1, if you have a Bible, feel free to go daydream and go read that right now. But what we talked about last week, Jesus, all things were created through Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. And think about this. It's not just that every time a baby is born, creation happens again. But every time art is made or a song is written, creation continues. Why? Because God shared his work with his image bearers. And now it's our work. Every time an invention is patented, creation continues. Every time technology is developed or pharmaceuticals are discovered that work, creation happens. Every time plays are written, buildings are built, laws are passed, crops sprout out of the ground of some farmer who planted it there a few weeks earlier, creation continues. Every time a term paper is written, every time a new friendship blossoms, creation continues. And it's not just that it happens automatically. People created it. People built it. People did it. You did it. I mean, I was mindful of this as I'm writing this very message. Creation continues. God has invited me to join him in his work for the sake of other people. He's invited you to join him in his work for the sake of other people. This city, this campus, your friends, this country. So God doesn't retire on the seventh day. What he's really saying is the stage is all set up and it's ready to go. As if we set all this up before and then like Kaylee and Mason and the band come up. It's all ready for you. But you're the one who's going to stand at the microphone. You're the one who's going to play the guitar. If we were going to zoom about as far out of the biblical story as you could possibly get, and really dumbed it down to its basic, basic, basics. Here's one theme you'll see. The story of humanity, of God and people, begins in a rural, undeveloped garden. And it's set on this trajectory towards where the Bible ends in Revelation 21 and 22 with this urban, perfect, beautiful city of God descending from heaven. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man forever. It's a trajectory of refinement and development from a rural garden to an urban city. Heaven is urban. Heaven is a city. Heaven is a busy place. Heaven has, its, has everything going on. 
That's the trajectory that God has set creation on. And he set you on it too. Because the passage goes on in this first paragraph, after he made us, then God looks at us, and this includes you. And he says, be fruitful. Remember, he's the fruitful one. He's saying, be fruitful like me. Multiply or unleash life, create life. He's talking literally, but also in all the figurative ways we've talked about. He's saying, I create life. Join me in creating life. Fill the earth and govern it. Some of you don't think of yourselves in this dignified, honorable, respectable way. You don't think of yourself as someone who reigns over anything or has dominion over anything or governs anything. You don't think of yourself as a leader. Maybe there's a lot of painful reasons in your story of why that is. You think of yourself as an inch tall. You think of yourself as, I'm never really going to go anywhere in my life. You've gotten that from somewhere other than your maker. Because he exalts you and says he made you to reign with him. And to turn a a little chunk of scraggly looking woods into a beautiful garden and even into a city. Okay, there's a guy named Al Walters who wrote a book called Creation Regained. And it changed my life. I read it pretty soon after I became a Christian. It was the book that gave me a view for all the things we're talking about tonight. It kind of gave me, it kind of like opened the floodgates for the gospel to flow into my schoolwork, my studying, and my my job, which is a place that that had never touched before. Here's something he says in his book. He's describing this passage that we've been talking about. He says, the stage with all of its rich variety of props has been set by the stage director. The actors have been introduced, and as the curtain rises and the stage director moves backstage, they're given their opening cue. The drama of human history is about to begin, and the first and foundational word of God to his children is this command to fill and subdue. In other words, the stage is set, but guess what? God doesn't get out of his seat to develop the economy or to create new business systems that lead to greater efficiency. God doesn't step up to do the scientific research to develop the drugs that's gonna cure the diseases. God doesn't get into the US Capitol and start passing laws, you do. And it pleases and delights him to work through your work. God also, have you learned this yet? (laughs) Uh, Won't study for your test for you, he won't. The seniors laugh. They've learned that one. He wants to invite you into his world and for you to be curious about his world. For him to just, uh, he is merciful to us. Like how many of us have passed tests we had no business passing? He is kind and he's merciful. But why would he, why would he allow us to hopscotch over actually digging into his creation and learning how brilliant and beautiful it is so that we can master it and help people with it. Some of you are amazing at math and God wants you to get more amazing at math because the person on the row in front of you can't add the basic numbers and you're supposed to help them. That's his delight and his desire for his world and that's your place in it. 
So if you, by the way, does God need you to develop the economy or perfect the business or do scientific research or study politics or negotiation practices? No, he doesn't need you to do anything. He wants you to be with him as he works in those ways. Back to my kids, I don't need them to come out in the yard with me on the weekends and do work. In fact, it makes it a little bit harder for me, but I want them to be there with me. Because part of being the son of a father, the daughter of a father, is to share in the father's work. Part of your calling as a son or daughter of God is to join him in his work. Think of Let me try to bring this down to earth a little bit and like concretize this. Here's an example. God made marble. He made it. And God made Michelangelo. And God gave Michelangelo his artistic gifts. The stage was set, though. All the props were there. But did God sculpt David out of that chunk of marble? No. God inspired and called Michelangelo to study the craft of sculpting, to learn from other people, to perfect the practice. And so when Michelangelo is able to pull a David out of a hunk of marble like that, it's not just Michelangelo that smiles and that you and I that smile, God smiles. Coworkers, he has shared his work with us and invited us onto the stage with him. I know it's hard to hear such positive talk about work and some of you are getting up at five in the morning to go make lattes for people all day long. So they, uh, Anna, you reference it in your prayer. It's already test season. Some of you are like, why am I in this class? It is so irrelevant to me. How could I possibly get curious like this guy's asking me to get about this subject matter? It just sounds like a utopian fantasy that you could ever think about work this way. And some of you are working two or three jobs just to barely pay tuition and rent. It's not everybody's story. It's some of yours. And you're having a hard time in absorbing what I'm talking about or believing that work could be good, that work could be beautiful. One of the reasons why we have a hard time believing that is because work is broken too. Work is broken too. We don't have a long time to talk about this aspect of it because we can't be here all night. But this second chunk, what's happening in that paragraph in Genesis 3 is God is describing the consequences of our rebellion, which we've kind of defined in this series as for the first time, people like us turn away from God to find life elsewhere, to find ourselves, to self-actualize apart from our maker. The consequences of that, again, don't just affect us, but everything we're in relationship with, which includes work and includes the world. So the ground is cursed. He says, all our lives we will struggle to scratch a living from it by the sweat of our brow, by all-nighters, and trying to learn organic, by the sweat of your brow, you'll get by. He's talking about how sin has wrecked work. It does it in two ways. We only have time to talk about one. One, it wrecks our personal relationship with work. It also wrecks work itself. How does it wreck work itself? 
the farmer who spends three months planting his crop and then hail takes it all out in about 20 minutes. The business owner whose opening day was last weekend and now it's under 12 feet of water in Florida. But how does it affect our personal relationship with work? This goes back to two weeks ago of how we're prone to turn everything in life about ourselves and to use it as a tool to advance ourselves. one, One effect of sin in our working world, which includes our studies and our job applications and our internships and our achievements, is that we are now asking a grade or a job offer or a starting salary to be something for us, like something existential, something spiritual for us. We are asking work to prove to all of you, to ourselves and to God, that we get it. We measure up. We have value. We're we're worthy of respect. So, We're asking our work to do for us now what only God can do, to justify us. We're asking our work to justify us. This is why we feel, isn't it odd? I mean, it doesn't seem odd, but isn't it odd that we feel shame? Like if you took the MCAT and you did a lot worse than you thought, why do we feel shame? What an odd thing to feel when someone says, how'd it go? I bombed, uh, what was it? The GMAT. I bombed it. I was weeping walking up Lumpkin. I did so bad. And it gives you a result immediately. I'm like, gosh, couldn't I wait two weeks? I was so ashamed for all the friends that I'd had praying for me. I had to tell them. Then a month later, I got the rejection letters for business school. Thank God I got those rejection letters. But I was so ashamed. Why are we so ashamed when we don't perform well at work? Because we're trying to perform at work or academics to prove to ourselves first and then to all of you and then to God that we're good enough. It's why you feel the performance anxiety. It's why you feel like everywhere you go, you're on an audition. And the numbers that come back to you and the GPA, some of you are crushing it and you're not relating to what I'm talking about right now. But if you were ever to get an A minus, you'd be devastated. You're still getting the dopamine release of performing well, but there's gonna come a day when you're not. And you're gonna be able to relate to the rest of us. Sin has made us ask work to be religion. We're asking it to do something that only God can do. Uh, David Zoll, I've quoted him before, but I'll pull this up. He says, when work becomes the primary arbiter of identity, purpose, worth, and community in our lives, when it becomes where you locate or where you look for enoughness, being enough, it has ceased to function as employment or school, and it's, become, it's begun to function as a religion or at least we've made it responsible for providing the very things we used to look to God for. Honestly, I think I'm more concerned about the workaholism in this town than I was concerned back in the day about the alcoholism in this town. That is obvious. And people tend to leave that behind when they graduate because you can't get a job if you're that. But this is celebrated. You get more money if you're a workaholic. 
You get promotions if you're a workaholic. Our culture bows down and worships you if you use work to prove yourself. And that's why I'm more concerned about it. We end with this question, y'all. We end with this question. Is there a way to make work work again? And when I say that, I mean the way we were talking about it the first 20 minutes. Is there a way in this landscape of work feels like toil and it feels like sweat and it feels like all-nighters and it feels like I try so hard but I never make the impact that I hope? It feels futile. Is there a way for work to work, to be restored to that original co-working relationship between you and God? This is what the Ecclesiastes passage is about at the end. And this is where the writer of Ecclesiastes is verbalizing what you and I feel. What do, people, what do we get from all this hard work and anxiety? Like I feel that about my, some of my degrees in the past, like what, what did that even mean? All the toil that I put into that. Our days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night our minds cannot rest. We feel that. It's all meaningless. So I decided there's nothing better to do than enjoy food and drink. But then he gets serious. It occurred to me, a good thing to do is to enjoy food and drink and find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. In other words, he's saying the giftedness of work, the invitation to join God in his work is still in play for you. Even amid the toil, even amid our shady hearts and how they're asking work to be something for them that, that work can't be. Even still, this creation mandate, this an invitation to join God in his work, to serve him and serve the world, is still in play. But here's what's going to have to happen for you to be able to get there. Remember last week? Who's the key to all renewed relationships, whether it's a relationship with work or your body or your best friend? Who's the key? Jesus, who made all things and works over all things. Well, how does he free you to work well and to find joy in your work and to be able to study for that, that test you have coming up next week, not just with, I got to get this in my head so I can get the grade, but maybe slow down a little bit and try to enjoy, how did God make these chemical compounds? This is amazing. Or if you have a bad teacher, to go find someone on YouTube who actually is passionate about the topic and can teach you, and their joy is contagious. How could you ever get there? Jesus is going to have to do something in your heart, or he's going to have to remind you of what he's done. For those of us who are asking work or achievement or school to justify us, Jesus is going to have to justify you, or you're going to have to remember that he has. And Jesus is not a God who asked you to dance a dance for him or audition on a stage to bring a smile to his face. Romans 5, Paul writes, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
For if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? I promise you, friends, if you want school to become fun, if you want to be up at 6.30 tomorrow morning making an annoying latte with all the weird customizations for the customer, if you want that to become a joy to you, when you're mixing that stuff up or when you're up late tonight studying, you see the smile of God over you, a God who has justified you, and he's not waiting for your grade on the test to see what he feels about you. You see his smile, and then you see him delight in making that drink in an amazing way to bring pleasure to that person. Or, or to get a solid B, but you actually learn the material. Let's pray. Jesus, we just kind of tagged on at the end there what you must do deep in our hearts to unleash us back into work, to join you in your work in a clean and healthy and life-giving way where we're not trying to use work to just advance ourselves selfishly, but we're joining you, a life-giver, a, sh- a one who shares That's a supernatural work, both the justifying and the reminding of it. And so we look to you, poor, and ask you to do that. We pray this in your name.